Our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew 13, beginning to read with verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat or along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And then as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we come to Revelation 14. We'll read verses 12 through 20. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the white cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar. And that was the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Every week, because as I mentioned last week, all these passages are tied together. They're linked inseparably together. And this whole book makes so much sense once you begin to see how the, the outline and see uh, how these scenes are linked together. 
And so it's difficult for me each week to keep from taking a long time to go back and, and say, this is what's been happening. This is what's happening now. Uh, sometimes uh, we hear ministers and they will spend at least half of the message saying what they've already said the week before or the two weeks before to catch everyone up. And that's a big temptation here. It's hard. And so I would commend to you that if you weren't here last week uh, or the week before, that after you hear today's message, that you go back and listen to last week and the week before that, it will just help you to put it all together um, because we're going to jump right in this morning and we're going to take just a we'll look back just for a minute, uh, but we'll deal with the passage in front of us. But we'll help. It'll help you get it if you go to the website and listen to the messages that you've missed. Now, having said that, let's pray together because none of us will be taught. None of us, unless the Lord speaks, unless he opens our ears and our hearts and speaks. So let's pray and ask him to teach us. Our Father, we bow before you as always. In every Lord's Day, we come to this point and we remember that we're priests. We've strived all week to be prophets out there taking your word out into the world with what we say, with what we do. But you tell us that we're also called to be priests, to come and bring the world before you in prayer, to bring our brothers and sisters in Christ, our neighbors, our families. This morning, our Father, we remember Kate Morrison we ask that you would speak to her as only you're able to speak to her. Bring her comfort. Bless John Morrison, Father. Give him grace. Give him comfort. Cause him to be a, a dear comfort to Kate. Uphold both of them, Father. Cause him to remember the gospel. To remember the coming glory. Bless John and Kaki and cause them to be a comfort John and Kate. Cause John and Kate to be a comfort to them. We pray that you would bring, continue to bring healing to John. Strengthen him. Our Father, we pray for Nita Wittishen that you would bless her and give her grace. Our Father, we pray that she'll remember your voice and remember your word. Bless Buddy, Father, as he cares for her. They've been such an example, Father, as a husband and wife and father and mother. We thank you for that testimony that continues to this hour. We pray that you would give Buddy strength for these days. Now, as we open your word... Our Father, once more, John Sartell cannot speak so that it will make any difference in our lives. So we ask that in these next few minutes, 
we would hear your word in our hearts. We're your children, Father, asking you, our Father, to teach us. Tell us the story again. In the name of your dear Son, and for his glory, amen. How do the people of God respond to opposition and persecution? I know the title in your bulletin says, how do, how do the people of God respond to persecution? But we need to put in there opposition, to opposition and persecution. The scenes and visions in chapters 12 through 14 can be summarized in this way. They are a summary portraying the conflict between Satan and Christ, portraying the conflict between Satan and the people of Christ. In chapter 14, in chapter 13, we saw Satan imitate the incarnation as the great beast that came to power looked exactly like Satan. He had the same characteristics. Satan gives this beast his own authority and Satan's own power. In chapter 13, verse 7, we read, he was allowed, this beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Then there comes a foreboding prophecy. Look at Revelation 13, 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. People, this is evil at its apex. God's restraining hand has been removed and the Antichrist is tearing the church apart. He's shredding it. Notice, this is not some new power that somehow Satan has achieved to overcome God. Look back at that verse. He was allowed to make war on the saints. He was allowed. Who allowed him? God did. Satan is not God's equal. This is not some kind of dualism. There's no doubt about how this war will end. We affirmed that this morning in Luther's great hymn. That third verse, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. God has but to speak, and Satan's done. But in spite of that, in chapter 13, we see an apocalyptic persecution of God's people. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. 
How are God's people to respond? He tells us there. He said, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Sometimes we look at bad things happening and we say, this is going to be hard. This is going to call for endurance, hard endurance and faith. When all seems horrifically dark, endurance in faith that God reigns. So why have I taken us back into 13, back to that verse? Well, in chapters 14, where we've been, after the scene in glory, there are two scenes about God's judgment, and these are graphic, graphic hard scenes about God's judgment. We looked at the first one last week. Well, in between those two scenes of God's judgment, there's a strange benediction pronounced on those who suffer persecution described in chapter 13. Here's this awful persecution described in 13. And here in the middle Two, you have this scene of judgment, this is between them. There's a benediction. We read the passage this morning. The first two verses. Look at it. Revelation 14, 12, and 13. Here's a call for the, again, the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith. See the two words? Endurance and faith. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead. Here it is. Here's the benediction. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. That they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Notice this benediction was the voice of God himself from heaven. I heard a voice from heaven. God himself is saying a benediction over those who were, su- who were suffering the severest, most severe persecution. It's as if God looked upon Stephen being stoned there in Acts. And the stones are smashing and crushing his body, breaking the bones and tearing his flesh. And what does God do? God gives a benediction over Stephen. It's as if... Here are these saints dying in the Colosseum in Rome. Their bodies being ripped apart. And God says a benediction over them. It's as if the people suffering, the millions suffering under Hitler's Nazi regime or Stalin's Marxist regime or Mao's Marxist regime. It's as if God sees these saints dying, being slaughtered. And what does he do? He says a benediction over these saints. How can this be? How do the people of God respond? How are we supposed to respond to opposition and to persecution? Let me stop here for a minute. We've talked about this in a message before, and I'm sure every one of you can outline it. I just want you to know, I remember that message. It was in the sixth chapter of Revelation. 
And uh, of course, none of you will be able to recall it right now. But we've talked about this before. There's a lot of answers to this question. Maybe you'll walk out here this morning and say, well, you know, John didn't say this. This is another way that we respond to the opposition and persecution. There are many, many ways given in Scripture. We've already covered some. We're covering some different ones this morning. And we'll come to this subject again. Having said that, before we begin to answer, the, before we answer the question, what do we do? How do we respond to the opposition and persecution? I want to finish examining the passage we read this morning, for therein lies part of the answer. Look at Revelation 14, 14 through 16. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. What's that scene? What's that picture? There's some debate as to whether the one that looked like the Son of Man seated on the cloud with a crown on his head is Jesus or an angel. People debate that back and forth. That question cannot be answered conclusively. I personally am in a, of the opinion that he is Jesus. But even if he's an angel, it matters not. The command, the command comes from the temple in glory to take his sickle and harvest. Now this is the harvest of the people of God to salvation and glory. Notice there's reaping, but there's no judgment here. No mention of the wrath of God. No mention of any punishment. Why? Because of what we saw last week. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs completely. This morning, we will take the cup of Christ's mercy, but we can only take the cup of Christ's mercy because Christ drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. That's where we ended last week. So this is the reaping. This first scene is the reaping of the people of God. Now, Let's look at the second. Look at seven verses. There's another angel. Revelation 14, 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle. Gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth. And it grew into the great and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. So another angel comes from the temple. This one comes from the temple altar. This angel, we're told, this, the unity of Scripture is so beautiful. This angel specifically had charge of the fire on the altar. What's the fire on the altar do? It consumes the sacrifice. The fire on the altar was a symbol of righteous judgment, of the destruction of wickedness. That angel, come, he's, he's the angel of the altar, the angel of the fire. 
That angel commanded another angel with a sickle to harvest the grapes that are ripe with wickedness. The angel swung his sickle and threw them into the winepress of the wrath of God. Now, in the scenes last week, we saw three angels come and fly overhead, and they all had three different messages. The third angel in verse 9 of Revelation 14 declared that anyone who wears the mark of the beast, anyone who wears the mark of the beast and drinks his wine of immorality will also drink the wine of God's wrath. That's one thing. It's one thing for Satan to set forth his word in opposition to God in this world. It's quite another thing for anyone to proudly wear Satan's mark and to drink of his wine of immorality. Oh, it will be acceptable. We saw this last week. This way of life, this wine, this new life, it will be prized. It will be the mark and drink of every party. Be popular. Yet it is poison and will lead to eternal death. If you drink this wine, you'll drink the wine of God's wrath. Now, the chapter then comes back to the theme as the grapes are harvested. These grapes represent those who have drunk the wine of the spirit of the Antichrist. We could utter those haunting words from Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 20. The harvest is past. The summer's ended. We are not saved. Wow. This is a horror of destruction. The horses were symbolically swimming in the blood of this judgment. Notice, this is again the unity of Scripture. Notice the winepress of God's wrath is where? It's outside the city. Where was Jesus crucified? Where was the place of judgment? It was outside the city. It was a place of shame. The cross was a place of shame. You know, no Roman citizen could be crucified. It was beneath their dignity. It was, a, it was, it was the worst of the worst shames. Golgotha was a place of the skull. It's a place of shame. Do you know what happened? Many of you are wearing crosses this morning. And that's a good thing. Those crosses are beautiful. That place of shame, that thing of shame, has become a haven of salvation, has become a great tower of power, has become the sign of salvation, the sign of life. That cross has become so beautiful. Well, the mark and wine of the beast that will be raised up 
will be a, a wonder to be appraised, will be a wonder to be wanted, to be something, a wealth to be desired. But in judgment, it will be brought outside the city and it will become a thing of shame. Okay, so what do we take from this? First, I want you to see that evil's opposition to God and his work will be among us until Christ returns. In, in all these passages, right to the very end, we see the great power of Satan and the beast. The awful presence of the dragon and his beast in Revelation 13 remind us that we live and will live in a fallen world until Jesus returns. This morning, we read that the coming judgment at the return of Christ is compared to a harvest. Well, that was not, that's not the first time John saw something like this. In fact, when John saw these two scenes, he immediately, I can tell you what he thought. He thought back to the day that Jesus was speaking to him with all the other disciples and talking about the harvest that would come at the end of the age. Look at it in Matthew 13. We'll read it again. Matthew 13, 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who has sowed good seed in his field. But wise men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then? Does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers. Reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Since the ascension, since Jesus ascended, the church, the wheat, has grown to the ends of the earth. But the godless cultures of evil have continued to grow also. They grow side by side. We see it every day. Jesus promised that the wheat would be harvested to salvation and evil would be harvested to judgment and destruction. Now, these two basic truths have been clearly seen in the Gospels and throughout the book of Revelation. You say, what basic truth? First, in spite of fierce opposition, in spite of fierce persecution, the Gospel of Jesus Christ has marched victoriously through the ages to the very ends of the earth. Go back to that motley crew of disciples in the upper room right after the ascension. Who would have bet that this, this group of quite ordinary men would preach and would spread the gospel and the gospel would spread like wildfire across the entire Roman Empire in their lifetime. 
would have bet that their gospel would build churches and schools and hospitals and children's homes on every continent, on every nation for the last 2,000 years. In spite of this fierce opposition, those, remember, those original disciples, all of them were martyred except John. Martyred. They were killed. Who would have bet that this would happen? That the church would go. So, how do we respond first? We respond to the opposition as the glorious march of the church of Jesus Christ continues to the end of the age. But there's a second basic truth that we see in the Gospels, in the book of Revelation. Satan and rebellious mankind will continue to war against God, his word, his reign, and his people. Even as the good wheat is growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the weeds, the tares are growing alongside of it. In the parable, the servants ask the master, hey, let us go. You want us to go pull out those weeds? No. Let them grow alongside of each other till the harvest comes. In Revelation 14, John is watching that harvest, those scenes, those two scenes. He's watching God's harvest, the harvest of which Jesus spoke. As we move forward in Revelation, it will help you immensely if you understand that the church, in spite of horrific opposition and persecution, has grown to the ends of the earth. That's our first response to the persecution. The church has already been victorious in a powerful way in spite of the opposition. There's been 2,000 years of opposition. I mean, look, look at the 20th century, the opposition in Hitler's Germany, the opposition all across Asia, in Stalin's Russia, in Mao's China. Do you know how much of the world that is? In spite of that, we must never stop being the church of Je that Jesus said would move forward to the very gates of hell. And when we got there, not even the gates of hell would be able to withstand the gospel. That's our first response. Our second response is to understand that evil has also continued and grown in spite of the growth of God's people. We should not be surprised at the horrific works of evil in our world. Sometimes, sometimes Christians want to point to medical advances, to modern hygiene, to modern modes of travel, to advanced technology, to the advancements in agriculture. We see these things and, and we're apt to say or we're apt to hear, mankind is better. Well, Life may be easier. We certainly have more conveniences than at any other time in history. But these modern conveniences, these advancements, have not made man any better. Go try to tell. Here's all this technology, everything. Go try to tell. Go try to tell the people living 
under the Nazi regime, under Hitler, that killed millions and millions of people. Go try to tell them, mankind's better. Yeah, right. Go try to tell, as Stalin's Russia killed tens of millions of people. Go try to tell all those people, oh, but mankind's better. We got tractors now. Go to China, North Korea. Man's better. Yeah. And it's not just in the countries where it's severe persecution, where people are getting killed. In our own culture here in the United States, we don't look around and see overt physical persecution, but we do see an aggressive, overt hostility to God's Word, His law, and to His church. This week, I read an article in USA Today. It was so disturbing. It was a review praising a current movie concerning the homosexual lifestyle. You all know me. Those of you that know me know that I'm not naive. I'm not a prude. That I was appalled that such a movie could be produced and appearing in our theaters. I was appalled that such a review would appear in a national newspaper. I hope you'll go online and read that article. It was in the September 29th edition of the USA Today. The name of the movie is Bros, like, hey, bro, is Bros. Folks, we're living in a culture that does not merely tolerate sin. It celebrates sin. It rejoices in sin. Every day in the presence of God, this culture looks at God and what God calls good, and they say, no, God, that's evil. And this culture looks at evil that God has said is evil and says, no, God, you got it wrong. That's good. In Genesis, God appoints mankind to be a steward of creation, to care for it, to create in an orderly society. The advancements, the advancements we mention are fulfilling somewhat that command. But how does the invention of an airplane or flu vaccine change the heart of man? How does the creation of the computer and internet change the heart of man? Modern conveniences are wonderful. I don't want to go back to the 19th century and give up all these things. I don't want to do that. But folks, they don't change your heart. You know, one of the greatest conveniences, you can, you can have my car, you can probably have a computer, but I'll tell you one thing you can't have, my hot shower. It's the greatest thing in the world. I think of all these people that lived in the ages past, they never experienced one hot shower. Sometimes I have two a day. It's wonderful. But you know, 
That shower may take away the physical sweat and grime and dirt. It actually makes me feel better. But it does not change my sinful heart. It doesn't do what Jesus did at Calvary. It doesn't do what the Holy Spirit comes when he changes our hearts. Nothing in our modern technology can do that. So how do we respond to the persecution from the world, from the opposition? We're not to be surprised. We're not to be shocked. It's to be expected. Jesus told us in the Gospels, and it's repeated in Revelation, evil will stand opposed to him, to his gospel, to his word, to his rule. And the world's not going to grow out of that. Not until judgment. All the modern inventions and improvements have not changed the sinful and rebellious nature of man. The greatest fear that the world should have is the coming judgment of God. As we have seen in the graphic pictures of judgment, there's nothing more horrific in heaven or on earth than standing before a holy God and having your every rebellious word and your every rebellious act revealed for all the world to see. And you'll be, we, the, the, whoever stands there will be proven to be in open rebellion against God, against his word, against his Christ, against his rule. But you know what? As we see the persecution of the world, we don't have to fear this. Some of us, some of you came up to me after the service last week and said, whew, that's, that, that's hard judgment. Is, is that going to happen? No. What did Jesus do? He drank that cup of God's wrath to the dregs. There's nothing left for you to drink. That's why judgment was not mentioned when he harvested the grain. Oh, don't fear that, dear people. Don't fear that. Well, you say, well, man, what, John, what about the fear of severe persecution by the beast? Does, not, does that not make us tremble? That will be a painful experience. But listen to the voice of one martyr. His name was Paul. And he was, he was martyred in Rome for his faith. He was killed because of his faith. Because of his relationship to Jesus, he was killed. Listen to his words. Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Wow. Here's the end of chapter 13. The beasts are wrecking havoc, shredding Christians, killing. It's, it's horrendous. It's a bloodbath. And what's the very next scene after that? The first verses of chapter 14. It was a glorious day. Remember that Sunday several weeks ago when we got in that passage? There on Mount Zion stood the Son of God and Son of Man. Stood Christ and all the saints with him. It was a sign of victory. They were singing songs of victory. That was a scene. Now, in that scene, do you think any of those people turned to each other and 
said, you know, Joe, this is pretty good. But it wasn't, it wasn't worth all that suffering. It wasn't worth it. It's the Word of God. Trust it. I, considering, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Remember Rocky Three. I love the Rocky movies. There, when Rocky Three, there was this huge man. I think we knew him on television as Mr. T. Huge guy. And he was in a fight with Rocky and just killed him. It was so bad that Rocky, he was so big and so bad that Rocky was afraid of him. And then a fight, a heavyweight fight was arranged between them and he trained and he trained and he got in the ring with Clubber Lang. And there was a place in that fight where everything changed. And he looked at Clubber Lang and he said, hit me. Clubber Lang hit him, knocked him across the ring. He comes back, hit me. He walks back and he said, ain't so bad. Ain't so bad. I'll tell you one thing. That's the reason the judgment of God is stated so strongly in these verses. Some people are offended by it. But any persecution Satan brings, it's not going to come close to what God's going to do in his judgment. It's not. And any of that suffering, I'm telling you, people, we cannot imagine. People will say, are there going to be any golf courses in heaven? <laughs> you don't get it. If that's your question, you don't even begin to get it. You can't imagine what it's going to be like. None of us can. But I know this. Anything I suffer in this life because I stand with Christ will be nothing compared to the coming glory. The last response. I've got to say this to you. We're called to tell even those that persecute us and even those that oppose us, we're called to pray for them. We're called to tell them about Jesus, to tell them that a Savior died. We're called to tell them about the seriousness of their sin. I fear the church, the evangelical church, is trying to soft-pedal the language of the judgment of God that is used in His words. In trying to relate to the culture and trying to communicate to the culture, folks, the culture of our society more and more is looking like the culture of the Antichrist that's at war with Christ and his church. We must be careful. How will the church in our day answer? When the present culture of our country stands in judgment, what will be our answer? When that perishing world, when our perishing neighbors say, 
Why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you warn me about this judgment? Why didn't you warn me about the grossness of my sin? And the serious nature of God's justice. Why didn't you plead with me? People, we're not the judge. We're not the judge. That's, that's God's hand. Do you want us to go rip those weeds apart? No. You go tell them about Jesus. You go tell them a Savior's died. You go tell them that sin is sin. And that one day there will be a judge and a judgment. Amen. I'm ready after that to go to this table. Our hymn is Rock of Ages left for me 499